0: Hey, everyone. I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. In May 1796, Ona Judge freed herself from enslavement. She was Martha Washington's maidservant, and she had recently learned that Martha intended to give her away as a wedding present to Elizabeth Park Custis, Martha's eldest granddaughter. Judge quietly slipped away from the Washington's Philadelphia home, boarded a ship, and fled to New Hampshire. She lived there for the rest of her life. The Washingtons were never able to recapture her, despite their best efforts. On today's episode, Ona Judge tells her own story. Library research fellow Sheila Arnold joins me in character as Ona Judge to give voice to her life. Arnold is a historic character interpreter. She performs as many historical figures, including Ona Judge and Madam C.J. Walker, an African-American entrepreneur and businesswoman who was one of the wealthiest self-made women in America in the early 20th century. So here's the game plan. For the first half of today's show, I interview Arnold as Ona Judge as she might have been in the last years of her life. I then talk to Arnold herself about historic character interpretation and the powerful ways that performing as a formerly enslaved person can build bridges between communities. These are two conversations you won't want to miss. Now, as always, we'd like to say thank you to our subscribers and our listeners. We thank you very much for your support. We really appreciate it. And now, let's find Ona Judge's voice with Sheila Arnold. Well, we're delighted to have a special guest here today. Um, this is a real treat for us here at Mount Vernon and especially at the Washington Library. Would you mind telling us who you are?
1: My name is Oney Judge. I was the personal maid servant of Martha Washington. (laughs) I was born right here in Mount Vernon. When I was 10 years of age, Mistress Washington, she asked me to. (coughs) Child, (laughs) she didn't ask me nothing. She told me. I was going to be her personal maidservant. When I was 16 years of age, that's when Master was asked to be the first president of this United America. I traveled with her all the way to the first capital. That was New York City. <laughs> and I went with them to Philadelphia, the second capital. Yes, that's who I am. Oney Judge. Now some folks call me Ona, those be my friends. (laughs) I was born Ona Marie Judge.
0: (laughs) What do you remember about your life at Mount Vernon? Oh,
1: I remember being with my mama. Betty is her name. She was a seamstress. And worked with the cloth as well as a spinner. Mm-hmm. And she taught me how to sew. <laughs> Long ago when my hands was good. They used to call me mistress of the needle. I learned to sew so well. But I remember running and playing too. <laughs> oh, On the carriage side, you know, Uh, where mm -hmm. the grass is, Mm -hmm. we could run. I like the deer that the governor for South Carolina brought.
0: They
1: was tame. The mules didn't like them, they bite you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I remember the food lots of corn. Mm -hmm. And the seafood, oh. (laughs) We were supposed to just have (laughs) herring. But every now and then, we get some that be left over from when they fishing. I like shad. Oh, Oh, shad is good. It runs so large. (laughs) I remember those days. It was hard work at 10, learning to take care of
0: mistress. I ain't never do that for nobody for that. What kind of work did she have you do? Well, I laid her clothes out every day. She tell me
1: sometimes what she like, or ask me to choose. And then I prepare her bath for her, the, the water she used and sponge and such. and after she finished washing herself, I helps her put her clothes on all of them her petticoats and shift, her stays and her short jacket or long jacket or gown. and I dress her hair. That be most important mm-hmm. sometimes apply what she like to her face if she so desire <laughs> and then I am with her everywhere she go to tease and markets to visit friends and family. I be there to help with all in the household. Where she go? I be too. I had to learn. No, I had to learn how to be a chair. You know what I mean by that, child?
0: I'm not quite sure now. Well,
1: if you look
0: around, you might see a chair ain't
1: nobody sitting in. But it in the same room with you. Now that chair, till I point it out or say it, you probably ain't even thought about it. I had to learn to be like that chair. There, but not there. Available,
0: but invisible. I think I understand now.
1: You're a smart
0: young man. Well, I like that. Well, thank you very much.
1: <laughs> Did you know that when that when I was in Philadelphia, you see, I was smart too. Mm-hmm. Every five months or so, they would bring us back to Mount Vernon or take us across the way to New Jersey to visit. They did that. So we slaves wouldn't ask for our freedom. In Philadelphia, if you stayed six months continuous without leaving, you could get your freedom. One day in May of 1796, I was 22 years of age. Mm-hmm. I runs away. I gets my freedom in New Hampshire.
0: <laughs> when did you realize that running away was worth the risk? When, what was the moment that inspired you to free yourself?
1: All oh, along I'd unseen folks that was free. In New York City there'd be white servants living with us getting paid. They was poor, but they was free. There was a free community of negroes in New York City, but so many more in Philadelphia. I live good. I had fine clothes, even fabric shoes. I went to circus and theater. I live like a Washington. Then one day I hear, I hear talk about me I hear talk about me being given given to given to custis that custis child didn't want nothing to do with that that child. She was gonna get married. And I I didn't want to have nothing to do with her. And I hear mistress going to leave me to her in her will. I thought she might set me free. I'd be so good to her. I hear that but I knows she ain't gonna wait till she dies. I knows that when we go back to Mount Vernon she gonna see she gonna see her needn't some help, she gon' give me away. I didn't want to have nothing to do with her. Mm -hmm. I had a thirst for complete freedom. So I run. It was hard. I had to find a boat and I found the Nancy, folk told me I could go there. And Captain John Bowles, God rest his soul. He, he know I'd be there, but he let me come. And when I gets to New Hampshire, I find folk that let me work, eyes free.
0: What kind of life did you build for yourself in New Hampshire?
1: <laughs> Child, I ain't have nothing like I had with the Washingtons. That be true. Except I make my own mind. And I had cheering, and they'd be free. I got married to Jack Staines. We call him Jack, his name be John. But all the men that works on the ships in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, we call them Black Jacks. So I call him Jack. Hmm. We have three children, Eliza, and William, and Nancy. I works with my hands and cleans and soles. I does more work than I'd ever done before. (laughs) But I don't mind. I don't mind. I take the fancy clothes I runs away with. I I gives and and sells and, and use it to get pretty things or nice things I could live. I could live and oh, but I never live like I lived before. I'd be poor all the time. Folks take care of me. And that'd be all right. because I still free and make my own choice. Freedom. Means everything. It is more than the shoes on your feet. It is more than the clothes on your back. It is more than the house that you live in. It means everything. And freedom comes with sacrifice. I never see my sisters, my niece, who be named after me, oh nay, i see him again. i see him again. But I know, I know they'd be pleased <laughs> I'd be free. He was a nice young man, but I tired
0: now. I understand.
1: Can we talk more later?
0: We sure can. Um, thank you very much for sharing your story. We really appreciate it. Oh,
1: I don't mind sharing. Because I want folks to understand what freedom be. And you're a
0: good boy. <laughs> well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure for me and a real honor. <laughs> and scene. <laughs> Hi, Jim. How are you? All right, Sheila, thank you very much. <laughs> I've seen you do that twice now, and I, still, I am still in awe of how you just transform yourself into somebody else. Um, I mean, I know it's hard. Well, it's it's hard. Of course, it's hard because we're on the radio. You can't see us, but for the listeners at home, you know, you, you know, your physical. There's a physicality to, to your performance as a, in, as much as there is to the vocal performance. So your hands are shaking. You might, your face was even different. Like I felt like I was looking at a different person. Mm-hmm. Like I um. So we're gonna t- have to talk later about how I can. <laughs> Oh, I can be a better lecturer, too. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
1: there is a physicality. I remember when I first began to do this presentation, and um, it, that literally, in uh-huh. order to act like an old person, mm-hmm. um, I followed old people. I did it at my church. And um, literally followed some old uh, one of the guys at my church, and I, uh, Mr. Jackson, and I followed him because he just had this wonderful bearing. Wow. He was very really tall, but he always stooped just a little bit, you know, just a little bit. And the way he walked it was just, you know, this. He had a cane, and he, he, he was it was just a little slower. And um, and I was just praying he never turned around because <laughs> I just knew he would smack me upside the head. It would just be awful. <laughs> and then I was in a hotel in <laughs> Lafayette, and uh, 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 Louisiana, And there was a man who was walking, and he had palsy. His hands were shaking. Uh I was like, oh, that would be cool. So I followed him down this very large hall that nobody but he and I were walking on. And I just imitated everything he did. carefully
0: observing, yeah.
1: And then when he sat at one bench, I sat at another and literally did everything he did. And walked into the presentation. I was going into a presentation and did that for the first time. And one of my uh, friends was there, and she had seen me do it once before. And I didn't have the palsy. And after after that, she was like, oh, my God. Gosh, yeah. how did you do that? Yeah. She, and um, so it's just uh, learning, you know, how do people, you know, I, I take every, and I also, honestly, truthfully, take every stereotype sure. of old age. So, it, you know, and my mother, when she saw me do the performance, said, she's in her 70s, so am I. I do not <laughs> act like that. <laughs> I have the reminder that it's 18th century, so you know yeah. when you're old, you're really yeah, you're old. Really old yeah. yeah, at least exactly. that's what I say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I would like to unpack, <clears throat> unpack all of this because you know, I think there's a lot to talk about, and so I, you know, I've got a lot of questions. But uh, you know, maybe we should start with you know, how did you get an historical reenactment? You know, where. Where does that background and interest come from? Well, first I have to <clears throat> I apologize for a little bit of a, a tickle in my throat there,
1: but I have to first uh, take away the word reenactment. Okay. Um, Reenactors do not like the—reenactors are people that do everything Uh absolutely perfectly to the time period. Uh Um, And so I don't do everything absolutely perfectly to the time period, um, particularly in the clothes that I wear. I tend to use the costume I have as a way of helping teachers and students understand how they can create costumes without necessarily having— to buy something really oh, large, sure. yeah. so I, I so I I really uh, work on the illusion,
0: yeah.
1: um, rather than the. Absolutely specific uh-huh. thing. So um, so that's just uh, one thing. So I'm a historic, I call myself a historic character interpreter. Oh, okay. What I do uh-huh. is I take the information, uh-huh. I f- gather and gather and gather and gather, gather the information, and then I interpret the life based on the information, uh-huh. but I also fill in places where there is not strictly words. Sure. So the places that there are silences, uh-huh. what happens on the boat, what happens, uh, it, you know, um, when she gets there to uh, Philadelphia, uh, uh, sorry, to uh, New Hampshire, um, what happens on the trip up from uh, from uh, Mount Vernon to uh, to New York City. So those things I'm filling uh-huh. in the spaces of uh, because those aren't written down uh-huh. about her. Uh, so that's what my job is. And I know you asked me a question, and I forgot what the question is now. <laughs> well, I
0: have to reframe it because you you very kindly corrected me. How did you get into... A historical interpretation. Thank you, and yeah. so thank yeah. you for
1: repeating that yeah. for me. So, I used to work at Colonial Williamsburg. Okay. And uh, shout out to all my Colonial Williamsburg folks and such out there. And so, I used to work at Colonial Williamsburg, and I did some um, some acting in the evening time. I uh-huh. actually worked in as a manager during the daytime. In the evening, I did storytelling and did some performances. And um, I was asked to do a performance where I was a person. I did a solo monologue as part of a tour. Obviously, I was scripted, but I must have done it really well because Mm -hmm. people started to ask me questions. But I was scripted and I was in character. So I would answer the questions in character and just made up stuff about the person. Um, But it got to be so well accepted that I was in a house in, in a tavern and I had said a couple times well you just let mr. Master uh, Sethel know that you know treat me really good and people went back the next day yeah. and told him and he had no idea that this was from a play <laughs> at nighttime so eventually he connected with me and and we got real information uh-huh. and what began to happen is people, wanted to see this character that was representing several other women there. And that really started me. And the words from uh, Christy Coleman, as she said to another friend of mine, uh, but I overheard and took them to heart. She said, never be ashamed to portray your ancestors. Oh. And that changed everything Mm -hmm. for me. I wanted to show the dignity of the people called Mm -hmm. slaves, of the enslaved people. I wanted to show their strength and their... um, just their lives in a very mm-hmm. different way um, to take away the victimhood that tends to be put sure. upon them and put in on them the survival survivor mm-hmm. uh, and so that's what began me and I've been going ever since
0: well I'd like to ask a follow-up question about that and we were sort of talking about it off yeah. off uh, mic before we started uh, about your experiences being here at Mount Vernon and 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 bolstering up your portrayal of a judge but and so there's a there's a kind of introduction to this question, mm-hmm. and, um, and I've been thinking about it since I saw your performance. And years ago, um, Denzel Washington very famously portrayed uh, a member of the 54th Massachusetts yes. in the movie Glory. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw an interview with him, and I never forgot it. It's, you know, it sort of stuck with me the rest of my life. There's a scene in that movie where he is he's committed some infraction, mm-hmm. um, and he's tied to a post and whipped, um, just as a slave would have been mm-hmm. when they have done something wrong. And at that moment... He actually started shedding tears, and and so I think he was on Oprah um, mm-hmm. after the movie came out, and she asked me like, was that a scripted moment? And he said he said no, that was that that was a moment when all the spirits just came to me, and you know, and, and he could feel their presence with him. You know, all that, you know, that suffering and injustice came to him in that moment and helped him tell that story. And when we were talking before. We started to record. You were you were talking about the fact that being here has really sort of amplified mm. your your experience of uh, portraying Ona Judge. And so, I'm, I'm a similar question. Do you, do you feel that sense of communion with the past that's helping you um, tell this story and tell her story?
1: I really do. And the the wild thing is, I have not yet been back over to the historic area. Uh-huh. I haven't set my foot down. And there's and there's something in me that's almost hesitant uh, sure. not almost there there's a hesitancy for me to go over there as if when i set my foot down too much will invade uh-huh. you know and because i'm close enough where it's just overwhelming yeah. the amount of just I'm here and I am portraying her. And I generally, when I'm in character, I have to have something on, something particular on, uh-huh. and that's when I become in character. That hasn't happened here. Uh, so I can kind of drop into her character and out of her character without putting something on. And I do believe it's the land that I'm standing on. Um, and that first presentation where I decided in my head, I'm just gonna pretend like I'm coming back for the first time. yeah, And in doing that, I changed everything mm-hmm. because inside of me I began to think as her, how would that be? And it was overwhelming.
0: Yeah.
1: Because she never came back. Yeah. She never got to see her family. She never got to come back to the land that she knew. She never got to eat the shad from this river right. again, you know. And that it was just an overwhelming sense of what it would have been like. Um and the fact that she just never got to do that. Yeah. I was doing something in her spirit that she never got to do. Mm-hmm. And it has overwhelmed me. Um, and I think that's why I've just been i have been asking myself, why are you having, you know, usually I'm just yeah. like rushing over there. I have just been hesitant to sure. place my feet on the ground. And I i do believe it's because it will, there will be things I will experience. I, I'm not yeah. certain how the, you know? I, I'm not certain how what happens if I start crying in the front of when <laughs> I, I walk in the house and, and everybody's having a normal ordinary tour and I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen, but I wouldn't be surprised. Wouldn't be surprised. Well, yeah. I, but it
0: would be an understandable reaction. Yeah. And you, and you know, I didn't realize until just now, and for our listeners, um, as part of our, our research fellowship program, the fellows give a little brown bag to the staff to help. Help us understand, you know, what their project is and how we can best help them. And Sheila, you did an in-character presentation, um, and, and you, as you said, you you portrayed her as coming back for the first time. But you know, I, I don't think any of us knew until just now that you had made a conscious choice in that moment to you know portray her as as coming back and sort mm-hmm. of you know, what's her reaction to being back here. Um, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah,
1: and I, I stumbled. There were a couple times that I stopped and in, in that presentation and went, "It's been a long time." Yeah, and I remember I, you saying that. And yeah. uh, because as I was talking, trying to make sure I stayed on point, <laughs> I was also having the feeling of, "Oh my gosh, yeah. what did you just do? What did you just do in your head?" <laughs> and this probably wasn't the best decision to do this because I realized I was allowing all that, you know, all that history that I had yeah. researched, and all that loss. That she had because she she you know she always remembers, but she never gets to return. Yeah, and um, which means you know she never even got to introduce her family to I mean her children Mm -hmm. to where she had been. They never got to meet their cousins. Yeah, they never got to do that.
0: That's pretty big. Well, and that's just you know a concrete example of how terrible slavery was, right? Because it divides families. Yeah. Um, When when did Ona Judge come into your life?
1: She came in my life because of Mount Vernon, when I did come to the historic area. <laughs> and so I went on a tour, and it took us over the slave quarters. Uh-huh. The one, I do not know what her name is, but she was absolutely fantastic. She was a great um, tour guide, uh, great employee, and took us on, just gave so much great information. And she talked about Oney. Uh-huh. And this was 12 years ago. Okay, and so I asked her right away afterwards, you know, could she give me some more, you know, information? And at that time, she looked at me, you know, with like, um, well. The only thing I know of is in our book gift shop. We have um, a much smaller gift shop, by the way. Back then, <laughs> uh, gift shop. We have uh, the book called uh, "Taking Liberty" by Anne Rinaldi. Okay. Historical fiction, fantastic book. Yes, go out and get it. It's a little older, but it's still wonderful. And I picked it up and I wrote it, read it between on a flight between Virginia and California, which was happening mm-hmm. within a week of when I was here. And after that, I just knew I had to portray her. I was in love with her because she was different. Mm-hmm. She wasn't like any other slave I'd ever read about. Every other slave I've read about that's run away has had a hard life. Harriet Tubman's life, hard life. Right. Truth's True's life, hard life. Um, you know, just every other one has had a really difficult life. She didn't have that. She didn't have mm-hmm. that difficult in the sense of she didn't have, you know, she had food, she had clothes, really nice clothes. She got to experience things. It was extraordinary. But all that was put aside for the sake of freedom. Mm-hmm. And that was powerful to me because she was speaking words I felt like we all needed to hear, uh-huh. that the things we have, they're not what gives us freedom.
0: yeah.
1: And um, and, and they can really hold us fast to being bound to something else. And so that was really important to me. And so that's why I fell in love with her and knew before I – Left California, I was like, I gotta figure out how I'm gonna do her. And then I just started reading everything I could, which wasn't a whole lot.
0: Wasn't a whole lot. Yes.
1: Yeah. And so Elizabeth Gerson was had her um, her man, uh, her uh, thesis was on this, but it was I couldn't access a lot of that. Uh-huh. Um, there was very very little of it even in New Hampshire at that time. Uh, a couple of years later, a picture book came out by Emily Arnold McCulley, and I read that and read some of the things she referred to. And then another picture book came out uh, uh, from a a woman in Philadelphia. That was it for a long time. And it was only 2017 that Erica, two years ago, you know, three I suppose now, but uh, three it was, yes, um, that Erica Armstrong Dunbar put out Never Caught, which was the first adult book um, that came out about her. And um, Wow, there was just wasn't a whole lot there, so I was always having to learn a little bit as much you know. as I could, and then also look at what other people's lives were like. That happened to be made servants.
0: Wow. And you know, one of the things you're doing here on your fellowship is is doing some more of that research. You know, taking advantage of what's been coming out in recent <laughs> yes. years. Uh
1: uh-huh.
0: So what are you finding?
1: I'm finding I have to change a lot of my presentation. <laughs> 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 Because, um, and it's really important to say that history is not a static thing. Right. We think it is sometimes. You know, well, that's just what history is. You know, it's just, you know, day It's yeah. you know, the facts. It's like, yeah, it's the facts until you find more facts. Yeah. And there's more facts because we're looking deeper and we're doing more things. So New Hampshire has done additional information uh-huh. and research and collected data and vital statistics and things are found in people's you know, garage and trunks and, I mean, just amazing. Oh, yeah. Um, you uh, give a big shout out to my friend Molly Kerr, who did uh, create, uh, helped do the work of the slavery database that is available oh, uh-huh. um, online, at even here at, uh, at uh, Mount Vernon, um, which meant that she separated, she figured out who all the slaves were yeah. and how they related to each other. And I will tell you, that's confusing. So I had always, example, been saying in my presentation that her she never got to see her mother again mm-hmm. because she ran away before her mother died. Because her mother's name, Betty, Betty kept coming up even after she died yeah. in research. And even said Betty Davis, which we knew that she had been, you know, had a man that was, you know, her last name. It was delightful. And so I was like, fine, I can use this until... Just last week. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When I find out that, no, actually, her mother did die a year before she ran away. And we know this now because there were several Bettys. Ah. And um, One's mother had a daughter that she named Betty, and they all called her Betty Davis. I see. And so this, you know, this Bettys were like, Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And so, um, and then that's what, and, 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 you know, coming to grips with, you know, okay, well, now how do I present this? Sure, yeah. And yeah. Um, so you all have now heard the first time I've presented it as she never got to go back and see her niece, So that's good. You all have heard that now. So these, but it's just, I've added so much in just the physical uh-huh. documentation. But I've also added so much in understanding the Washingtons even more. Uh-huh. And in understanding the Washingtons, it helps me get a glimpse of what her life was gonna be like. Because yeah. she's with Martha Washington. So if Martha Washington is frustrated, she, as the maidservant, is going to have to walk with that frustration. It means you have to oh, handle yeah. things a lot differently. And uh, if you've ever had to care for an adult, mm-hmm. you know, and watch over but you know that you kind of, you, you, know, you walk where they walk. Right. And kind right. of help them through the things that they're going through. And you know, just uh, two days ago, I got to read the Journal of Robert Lewis, who was the young 19-year-old man who was the secretary of George Washington, who had to escort his aunt <laughs> up to New York City, yeah. where he was going to be living as well. And it is a wonderful and delightful thing. But to hear that moment, to get to that moment and see it, where Martha Washington knows her life is going to change. Mm-hmm. And Robert just simply says, she told us she would when we she crossed the ferry. The gentleman from Baltimore would be there to greet her, and she had to change clothes. Oh, uh-huh. and up to that point, she'd just been kind of wearing yeah. just nasty. But now she had to get herself all together, and it took her a long time, long enough that they were able to fix up the the, the carriage, get that all clean. Uh-huh. The men got into their the slaves got into their livery. The horses were cleaned, and it took her that long to get ready. I don't think it took her that long to get ready.
0: Yeah,
1: I think it took her that long to get dressed, ready, and emotionally changed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because from that moment on, her life ceases to be hers.
0: Yeah,
1: And to see that written and to know where that changed, because that also means One's life
0: changes. changes. Her, yeah, Changes her life.
1: And everything changes at that moment, at that ferry, right, right at that ordinary, right before they cross yeah. over. And to see that has just been extraordinary uh, here. And then the conversations. I cannot thank Brenda Parker and Elizabeth Keeney enough. Uh, Brenda introduced me to the community that was here and how this community of enslaved people worked. And Elizabeth introduced me to intimacy, Mm -hmm. the intense intimacy that would have happened as an enslaved person is watching a person uh be completely vulnerable in front of them, mm-hmm. and you know there's no clothes on, you know she's putting clothes on yeah. she's seeing this woman in her you know Martha Washington in her complete uh glory, as my mother would say, but uh <laughs> she's seeing <laughs> but as a woman who is growing older myself um and watching how my body changes uh-huh. this ten, eleven twelve, thirteen, sixteen, yeah. 22-year-old, she's watching the body of an older, of a woman change as well. Right. And all the things that come with that. Some of you ladies out there are starting to think, oh, yeah, yeah. I remember. You know, <laughs> and so things happen, you know, change. We don't know. It's not remarked if she went through menopause, but yeah. she may have. The body changes. The body changes. You know, just the things that are happening. So uh, there's an intimacy. I, I've uh, It's completely changed how I see This relationship. Does that mean that that intimacy meant that they were friends? No. Right. Because remember, this intimacy is a one way street. Yeah. One sees her, and there's even a a power in that. But Martha Washington never sees One, never considers her body, Mm -hmm. never considers her her pains, her cramps, her growing older. Yeah. Um, She goes from being 10 to being 22 under the watch of Martha Washington. That's
0: a period of great change. That's a period of great change. And it gets to that point you were talking about with a metaphor of Mm -hmm. being a chair, right? Seen but unseen. Mm -hmm. Seen but unseen. That's And so
1: that's made that much, much clearer to me than I could have ever imagined. Being here has just opened the doors from the documents to the conversations. And on Saturday... And it's supposed to rain Saturday, so that's probably perfect for me. And on Saturday, uh, which I've put it out, that's going to be the day that I'm going. When I walk on the ground, I know that will change things completely. So I'm glad I haven't done that yet. And uh, and uh, so if you happen to come here on Saturday of this month, yeah. <laughs> if you were if you happen to be in in January and you were here and you heard this and you uh, you were like, oh, that was that woman crying over there. <laughs> so no. that it's it's been a gift.
0: Yeah. Uh, wow. Well, I'm, uh, and so I'm curious, uh, when you mentioned, um, we were talking off camera again, yeah. you, you said something to the effect of part of what's happened here, part of what you've been doing is is figuring out how to fill the silences or the mm-hmm. blank spaces. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you know, for a historian, right, we, we rely a lot on documentation, we, on material culture mm-hmm. to sort of reconstruct the past. But And we can interpret silence in the historical record, um, depending on the context around mm-hmm. that. But... Getting into those quieter moments you were talking about is much more difficult. Um, and so you know how, how does the, the interpretive community, the, the histori- historical interpreters, achieve that kind of, or filling those gaps? Mm-hmm. How do you find the sound in what it otherwise is supposed to be a, or appears to be a void?
1: I, one of the things I think that's, uh, I am a storyteller. Mm-hmm. So uh, good historic character interpreters are storytellers. Uh-huh at their very core. So I understand the pattern of story, the concept of story, how stories are created. In the storytelling world, there's also midrash. Midrashes were are the Jewish culture of uh-huh. tradition of stories and these stories and what they do is tell the stories about the silences in the the things that aren't oh, oh, spoken wow. in the in the um, in the Torah and in the word. Uh, And so um, taking that particular kind of focus of finding the stories, the in between uh, in the silences, you are looking for the story. What is the story? And so that's how I approach it as not what is the fact, what Uh is the story? Uh, That sounds different. It might even sound counterintuitive to doing something that's historical, but history is a high story. Saying, letting you know, yeah, and uh, that's no, I, and agree, so yeah. it is a it's so you're looking for where is the story in the middle. So when I yeah. tell the story of her being on the ship, I put in there that there is a a dark skin uh, dark skin Negro on the ship, uh-huh. and that he looks down and sees her and her she is wondering where the ship is, you know, and which of the ships is it? You know, she knows what the name of it, but where is it? Then she finds it, but she doesn't know exactly what to do. She's carrying herself well, but what should she do now? And then she sees a dark skinned man and says, You girl, come up here. This is where you're supposed to be And so being ordered, she follows him specifically, and gets aboard the ship. And then he takes her below stairs, below stairs, below stairs, and opens the door and she goes into a room and the door is closed. Yeah. And it's as dark as, uh, it's so dark she can't see her hand in front of her face. And so it's just this, this moment of creating what happens on the ship. Do we know what happens on the ship? No. Do I have more information now about what possibly what her trip was like on the yeah. ship? It, I definitely do. So now I know it's a sloop. So now I know that there have been more than her on that mm-hmm. ship. Um, do I think she was still hidden? I do because she didn't need to be recognized and right. she could have easily been. Um, was she maybe put somewhere by herself so that she could really be away? Yeah, I think that still works. Yeah. But it's how do I tell that story? How do I create that place? You know, what, what makes sense? And then how do I find that story mm-hmm. that I can tell? If that, I hope that helps people understand. But I'm looking for the story all the way through this, yeah. all the way through every bit of fact, I am finding the stories. And, um, and finding how I can best take the facts and make them into a story that is compelling enough for people to hear, sure. and that they hear the story and the facts, and it makes them it. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's really important is, I am, not a, I am not doing the presentation ever to give all the information about this person. Of course, yeah. And what I am is an hors d'oeuvre. That's what yeah. I call myself, <laughs> literally. <laughs> So yes I am a you know a a a toothpicked meatball, basically yeah. is what I am. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I don't know where we go from here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I am the old d'oeuvre to make you hungry yeah. for something else. And if I can do that, if I have somebody, the greatest gift to me yeah. is when somebody comes up and says, you make me want to go learn more about the Washingtons. Job done. You, it, or own it. I'm, I'm yeah, it it's or certain. own it. I don't care what they want to learn yeah. more about, but they want to go back and learn. Yeah. When I have kids and adults, my mom was in her late 60s when she heard me do this presentation. Actually, might have been early seventies. Might have been early seventies. And when she heard me do the presentation for the first time, her response to me afterward was, "Well, for the first time in my life, I think I might like George Washington." Well, that surprised me because I had not known. And she said, "I've pretty much not liked him because he's always and I've always seen him as a slave owner." Yeah, sure. And so she never saw him in all the things that we talk about. And she said, "I want a book." And so I proceeded to get her a book, and she read it in three days. I want more books. And so I got her something uh, following the drum, and then she read about Martha Washington and realized that my mother, who is, uh, my father is a a retired uh, general officer, my mother was like, oh, I get her life.
0: Her Uh, life (laughs) is my life. But she
1: had, she didn't do any of that until she heard this presentation. And that, and so that's what I, my job is, is to give you enough of the story to inspire, encourage, and to make you want to go see more. And um, that's what I do.
0: Yeah, maybe less le- less of a meatball, but more of a connecting bridge. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay, so I'm not a dwarf. He didn't appreciate that one. Yeah, yeah. I'm a connecting bridge. <laughs> no, I'll I, do that well, one. Know, know. Maybe, maybe meeples, and, and, You but... know, people are walking all over me. I don't know.
0: <laughs> oh, you had to do that. <laughs> I walked right into that one, didn't yes, you I? Did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Damn it.
1: <laughs> are we keeping that part in? Oh yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't know. We might. We might. <laughs> I think a little humility is good now. Hey, a little right.
1: humility yeah, yeah. is good. That's
0: yeah. my word for the year, humility. <laughs> exactly. Thank you for showing me what that yeah, means. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, uh, I hate to turn it back to something more serious. Yes, because please we're do. Fun, but, do. <laughs> um, well, I mean, just first a, a, a quick question. How, how many people do you interpret? So I have been doing this since
1: um, 2000. So I've been performing... Historic character presentation since uh, 1998. Oh, okay. Um, uh, But then when I left Colonial Williamsburg in 2003, uh, then I started doing this, doing more. So I have now 12 women in history uh, dating Uh from the 1600s up to the 1970s. And it includes people like Fannie Lou Hamer, who was Uh a a voting rights activist, uh, civil rights and voting rights activist. And uh, Madam C.J. Walker, who was the first African-American female millionaire. Uh, Keep your eyes open for Netflix. Uh, I suppose I shouldn't give a shout out to them, but they're doing something on her, so keep your eyes open Oh, they're really, okay. Yes, Octavia Spencer's gonna be in that. Uh, And then um, uh, my first was Old Bess, who represents Mm. the actual women at the Raleigh Tavern in Williamsburg, Virginia, Mm -hmm. uh, the enslaved women at the Raleigh uh, Raleigh Tavern in Williamsburg, Virginia, right before the Revolutionary War. So she talks about that time of those men in the Raleigh Tavern themselves who are making those decisions and making decisions about freedom, calling themselves slaves Mm -hmm. and forgetting. Yeah. That they are all slave masters right, right, themselves. Right. So it's really a powerful thing. So these are the stories. Some mm-hmm. of the stories I tell.
0: And and you you go you know to high schools and various organizations to portray mm-hmm. and I interpret go to these characters.
1: Schools, churches, libraries, yeah. museums, theaters. I've been on theater stages, festivals, conferences, organizations, um, and so I I do the characters. Um, I always do about forty minutes in character. Mm-hmm. Ten minutes. Uh, character Q and A, and then usually ten minutes of non-character Q and A. In the case of um, of of <laughs> of One Judge, I wear a wig and and such like that. So in the case yeah. of One Judge, when I'm getting ready to come out of character, I whip my wig off my head <laughs> and scare everybody to death <laughs> because then I have to walk and show that I really don't walk like that. I yeah. don't have palsy. I my voice changes as you all have now noticed, um, and it's really quite fun. And, yeah, and that part of it is so. But that happens with all the women. So I have. I have a, a few, a few wigs that come off every now and then, so. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm curious, you know, especially with the high school students, well, I mean, I guess with everybody, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're, we're living in a particularly divisive time yeah. in our, in our country right now and, and globally. And, you know, there's increased animosity amongst our fellow citizens. Yeah. And the only, there's, you know, increased racial tension, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of unfortunate things have been happening yeah. in recent years. Um, you know, what do you see the significance of the work that you're doing mm. in this historical moment to help, to go back to my bridge metaphor, you know, bridge some of those divides that mm-hmm. have emerged and, and help help people have an empathetic reaction uh, to some of the things that, you know, people like Ona Judge went through or yeah. Madam C.J. Walker? I, I really do see that as part of the. Um,
1: I, I don't. It, sometimes I use the word ministry. It is yeah. sort of like that for me, and um, part of my job is to leave little bits of um, of value. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I always say for students, it's I'm I'm one of the people leaving a brick in their foundation. So oh, and yeah. so um, so that's part of what I'm doing. It is, what, what happens is that students come up to me afterwards, particularly students come up to me afterwards and say, That's, this is better than a textbook because you yeah. made them human. So what I get to do is take a person and make them human. Because we don't see, we really don't, what's, what's happened a lot lately is we dehumanize people.
0: Sure, yeah. And
1: when you can actually humanize them and say, oh my gosh, we have more in common than we have apart, that is a big change. So when students can actually feel and emotionally feel and connect and laugh and feel and and cry over this person that is so different, and then realize, oh my gosh, I don't ever need to treat anybody like this person was treated. Yeah. What do I need to do to change? Um, and then we can have honest conversations about it. I mean, people. One of the things that a character interpretation does is it lays a safe space, particularly this particularly because she I am invited to predominantly white spaces all the time. Uh-huh. Um, and so she can lay a safe space because I'm real but not real.
0: Yeah, yeah. So
1: I'm sharing her story. I'm not accusing anybody of anything. And in sharing her story, it say, lays a space where we can then have intense conversation. Um, and really challenging conversation mm-hmm. because now people feel like they can ask things and say things and and in uh and talk to each other in a way that they haven't before. Yeah. That really is the power of storytelling and in character interpretation. Um because I that happens all the time. Um and it's wonderful and it actually happens with a, a lot of adults more anybody's like can we conver- can we have a conversation about this? Yeah. Now? Yeah. And um what is my role? I'm not trying to make somebody feel guilty, you know, I'm not trying to make somebody feel a victim. I'm not trying to make somebody feel like it's not my problem. What I am trying to do is open the space so that they can say, how do I treat people now? And why might some people be feeling this way? Why might African-Americans be feeling this way, yeah. having dealt with some of the things in the past? And have I dealt with that? Yeah. Have I dealt with what that means in a country? Have I dealt with the fact that it was a choice,
0: yeah.
1: that George Washington made a choice? That didn't happen until the end of last year. It was November of last year, the first time I've ever said that, that people had a choice. I used to say it was the time period. It right. was the things That's... that were going on. And I wasn't confronted directly, but in a space, in a group of people, and someone had said that, it was the time period. And a woman said, no, it was a choice. And I just stunned with that for a moment. Yeah. And I didn't know what to do with that. And then I said, wait a minute, was it a choice? And I started to think, yeah. John Adams didn't have anybody. Yeah. It was a choice. There was a choice that people could have made. We could have decided that Native Americans could have, we could have walked hand in hand with. Mm -hmm. We could have decided that we would pay the people that came and that we would allow them freedom and they would work with us Mm -hmm. and beside us and create a country together. Would it have taken longer? Yeah. But would we be stronger? Oh yeah. Because we would have walked it together. So it's a choice. That's been new for me. <laughs> but it's a place that I can begin to have these conversations. Yeah. And, and th- that's what happens when you have a, s- a space that's created. You can begin to think differently and, and go, okay, now I have a choice about how yeah. I'm going to think and how I'm going to treat people. I'm not defined by this way. I can choose.
0: Yeah. Well... You certainly have me convinced, <laughs> and, and but but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I you know, sometimes I think, you know, people will look at it a, at a character or a historic interpreter and and say oh, it wasn't that quaint. You know, isn't they're they're part of the scenery of the estate, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever you happen to be, and you you think they're fun to interact with for two minutes while you're standing okay. in line, but. Never, you know, give much thought beyond that. But you know what you're saying is actually it can play a much larger role in thinking about how we ought to treat one another.
1: Yeah, it's one of the reasons why um, I think it's very important <clears throat> when you have historic character interpretation at uh, the level I do it, but also in a museum area, yeah. particularly when you have roles that are um, challenging. Which the roles yeah. that um, Caroline and um, uh, that plays here is is not Caroline. The Brenda plays, oh, Brenda, which is portraying Carol. Caroline. Yeah. Um, is it's a really an important role, and um, and I just realized I didn't turn off my phone, so now I'm doing that. I'm just and amazed.
0: So. There's a signal down here.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, okay, and so uh, one of the things that I've realized is that um, in playing those those kind of roles, then people have questions. Yeah, and so museums. Um, In doing uh, more challenging kinds of roles, more challenging kinds of um, uh, exhibits and programs need to also give space where people can ask questions. One of the most powerful things at Colonial Williamsburg was when we were talking about the enslaved population had a whole year of that. And what they found, what they did, it was very wise, very wise. So you had a whole day of activities. But at the very end of the day, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, over in uh, 4.30 in the afternoon, they had a half hour time where in one building on site, people could come and ask questions about the day. There was standing room only in that place. Wow. Because people had experienced this and now had questions and thoughts. And you know what, it was supposed to be a half hour. People would be there for an hour and then the interpreters as they were trying to leave would have people trying to talk <laughs> to them. Um, the same thing happened when we did a program called Broken Spirit over at Carters Grove. We left, at the end, we let t- had time put in so people could ask questions. And our interpreters would be there for an hour, an hour and a half, because people had questions. Yeah. I don't think museums have quite gotten cognizant enough that when you're putting out challenging and, and different information, you need to have a place and a space where people can come and talk mm-hmm. and ask questions to those who, are, who have done the research and done the job in doing that. You'll have stronger attendance. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you'll yeah. You, you'll have more people come because they know that they can. They'll bring friends to go. But there's yeah. so much you can, and then you'll be able to ask questions. We had such incredible attendance at that time. People were leaving, going, "I just learned so much," but they'd also had a place to to process that. Mm-hmm. And I think museums can work on that part of challenging. Uh, Challenging programs and exhibits mm-hmm. is where can you create the space for process, um, and but that's part of what I do is yeah. is open up those doors to you know people and say have you thought about you yeah. know even at the leadership level of museums and such.
0: Well, uh, and if people want to help, or want to have you you know come to their school, come mm-hmm. to their corporate meeting, come to mm-hmm. wherever their church, um, and help have you help open up those doors how how can they best get a hold of you Jim you're so good so,
1: <laughs> <laughs> so yes you can uh, contact me at m s s h e i l a org, Miss org and um, and you can contact me that way. There's a, all my programming is listed on there. I have a a wonderful program request sheet, and my amazing um, uh, assistant Alyssa Braccia will you know make sure we're contacted and connected. Um, so that's a way to contact me, and I. Um, and i love doing things and i will say just quickly sure. that i just i don't just do programming in african american history month or black history month i do programming all year <laughs> long it 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 <laughs> so <laughs> So it's it's amazing, but there's a whole you know yeah. Black history happens every, every month every of month. the year and every year. It's yeah. amazing, just like Hispanic history and Asian history, and yes, white history yeah. too. Yeah. So, but we talk about white history a little bit more often. So, yeah. uh, but I just yeah. thought I'd add that in there. And I, I want to say this, Jim. Sure. One uh, audience, I just want to say you can't see Jim, but when he laughs, it is just you just want to laugh with him forever. <laughs> (laughs) And it's just a delightful thing. So I love this. But I also want to thank Stephen McCloud, who works with the Research Library Fellows uh, for helping me, uh, do, do, telling me I could come, which is great. I know there was a whole team of that, but also helping to plan and prepare for me to be here and, and making this an awesome time for John Aubrey Stone, who also helps the library fellows in the programs for helping me with, prepare for the program and also setting me up at the DeVos um, Resident Scholars. I appreciate the DeVoses uh, having this Resident Scholars mm-hmm. and being with the other library, uh, the other research fellows that have been here. And a special shout-out to Samantha, who works at our library, and helping me to check out 13 books, which was (laughs) so delightful. I just am so excited about what I've read. And to Mary uh, Thompson, the research historian here, who was the linchpin in helping me understand. And then from there, I was able to jump to all the other places. Um, but she helped with grounding me, in a way. Her book, uh, The Unavoidable, subject, oh, of the, reg- the unavoidable the un- subject of Regret. The mm-hmm. Only Unavoidable Subject of Regret. The uh, Only Unavoidable Subject of Regret. And then getting a chance to talk with her. has Those conversations have been uh, life-changing. So I am so grateful uh, for every person that has stepped in. But we need to give special shout-outs to those folks.
0: Well, I'm very pleased that you've enjoyed your time here. We've enjoyed having you. Um, don't go away anytime soon because <laughs> well, I think we're all benefiting enormously from having you here as a research fellow, and I think your audiences will benefit from it too once, once you leave here. So, Thanks. Sheila, thank you very much. Uh, you know, I think we all look forward to continuing the conversation and uh, wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Uh,
1: can I say thank you in a special way?
0: Please do. Now,
1: child, you remember, remember freedom means everything, everything.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Mason Shelby was our sound engineer. Our theme music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.